Going around, let me just uh, remind you what we've been doing this semester at RUF. We have been looking at the book of Deuteronomy. We've been making our way through it. And we've said that it is a, a series of sermons that Moses has given to his people, to the people of Israel, right on the verge of, of the promised land. And the content of those sermons is, is well, the, the intention of those sermons is basically to realign and to recalibrate the people of Israel's heart back to God. And so this is what is going on, and we've been working our way through this book. It's been a lot of fun, and it'll even get funner once we get into uh, the the middle of it. So we're going to look at chapter 6 tonight. Chapter 6, verse 10, if you have this this sheet or if you have a Bible, you can follow along. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, 10 through 15. little passage tonight, but it's good. All right, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. This is God's word. Let me, um, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll check a look at it. <clears throat> Father, we are uh, grateful just to be in, in the... Uh, the shelter of not being outside, and uh, we're grateful to be together. And I pray that you will um, come and bless our time tonight, Father. You know that we have no hope of understanding what this passage means apart from your help. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you help us? Would you open up our eyes and unclog our ears so that we would be able to see the gospel, that we would be able to see it clearly? And so we ask for your help in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am um, I'm a big fan of the band The Decemberists, and uh, their last album that they, they put out, if, if you're fans or are familiar, was uh, an album called The Hazards of Love. It was a really interesting album because it was basically a, a concept album where they, they more or less wrote the soundtrack to a musical. I mean, it, it's a musical. You know how most, most albums are just sort of these collections of little individual songs and they're just sort of all squished together. But this is a bunch of individual songs that are basically telling a story and, and it's this huge kind of musical with different themes to it, you know, musical themes to it. It's really interesting, really, you know, fascinating, you know, concept album. But the, the, the storyline hinges around an evil forest queen, and this ha- I know this has potential to get real nerdy real fast, but there's this evil forest queen, and she out of this uh, she adopts this son more or less, and out of complete like irrational protective jealousy over her son, turns him into a deer, like turns him into an animal, so that she she can have him for him for herself, and so of course the story begins to pick up traction when. He gets, when the spell gets broken, he turns into a man, falls in love with a woman, and the evil mother forest queen, you know, is so jealous, like invades and like, is, you know, intercepts the plan, and that's sort of where the story goes. But you notice that the entire story hinges on and revolves around this woman's jealousy, which you think, okay, that, that makes sense. Jealousy is a trait that you would, you know, typically 
ascribe to an evil villain or you know, an evil character in a story or whatever. And here's the problem. Because tonight, jealousy seems to be ascribed to God. And the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that the Bible seems to call God jealous? What does that mean? So we're going to look at that tonight. And we're going to look at this basically under three different headings. The, the nature of God's jealousy, the threats against God's jealousy, and then the intensity of it, the intensity of his jealousy. So the nature, the threats, and the intensity. All right, so first, what is the nature of God's jealousy? Because if you notice, this entire passage is really anchored in the fact that God is jealous. This isn't just some mood that he happens to find himself in. This is, this is something that is central and core to who God is himself. This is a part of his nature, of him being jealous. I mean, look at it in verse 15. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Now, I know us as modern Americans, we automatically think, uh, that sounds pretty awful. <laughs> We're really uncomfortable with this. It sounds like God is totally insecure and selfish. You know, this is not like a trait that you would describe your... You know, if you just, uh, you know, start a relationship you, and your boyfriend is like, are you telling your friends, oh, my boyfriend's great, he's, uh, he's great, we have all these common interests, I really love his family, and he is a jealous boyfriend. You know, that's not really a, a quality that you would, you know, promote to other people. But here we have in the Bible, uh, God is jealous, and we're like, okay, what do we do with that? Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book, The God Delusion, he says this in that book, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant figure in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. I don't know, in case you didn't pick up on it, Dawkins isn't really a big fan of, of God, but, you know. But I think he's probably articulating what some of us may think when we hear this, that God is jealous and we feel uncomfortable. But here's the disconnect. When the Bible uses the word jealous... It is using it in a way that is different from what we use in our modern you know, language, modern English, as far as what jealousy is, because we typically think of it as a synonym for envy, right? Like God is uh, envious. And I said this a couple weeks ago, but it's not saying like God is jealous in the sense that he's jealous that you have an Xbox and he doesn't. I mean, that's not, that's not the idea here. This is, this is love language. This is, uh, this is marital language. The Bible never uses the word jealousy in negative terms, ever. It's never used negatively. It's only used positively of, uh, of love. One author that I looked at uh, this week said that God's jealousy is one aspect of his love. I mean, just think about it. If my wife, Catherine, is spending all of this extra time on the side with this other dude, and I'm not jealous about that, I'm not upset about that, that would demonstrate at some level I don't love her. I mean, jealousy is a byproduct of love, right? It, it, it flows out of it. This is, this is love language. But let me keep going, because I know for some of you, this is still a little off-putting, because you think, okay, jealousy means... God wants us to be you know, entirely devoted to him and, and love him exclusively in the same way that I would want and expect Catherine to love me exclusively. But still, some of you are probably uh, thinking, uh, okay, so he doesn't want us to worship and to love anything else in the same way that we love him. Doesn't that sound so self-centered? Like God is, like God, we, he has to have our praise all the time. C.S. Lewis kind of made a similar objection, which I thought was pretty funny looking back on it. You know, he, he was really uncomfortable with this idea that God, all throughout the Psalms, is saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. And, and he said, it sounds like the Bible seems to picture God as craving for our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. 
I mean, you've met these people, insecure, always fishing for compliments, like, you know, and God seems to be up there saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, love me, love me, love me, and you're just like, okay, this is a little uncomfortable. But we have to think about it like this, and I want to make two points here. God's jealousy is for God, and God's jealousy is for us. And here's what I mean by that. When God's jealousy is for God, think of it like this. If God were not fully committed to God, if he were worshiping or or concerned about something else more than God, then he himself would be committing idolatry. He himself would be breaking the first commandment. Because think about it. What is the greatest being in the universe? God. What what, what will absolutely fulfill and satisfy you? God. And therefore, what should everybody in the universe worship and adore and give complete loyalty to? God. God. But you see, all of that applies to God as well. If he were more concerned about something else in the universe more than God, then he would be breaking the rules. He would be committing idolatry. You thought about it like that? Like he, is, he has to be committed to himself. If he's not, this is a bad thing. But you, but you, but you still say, but that seems to make God so, so self-centered. Who does he think he is? The center of the universe? He is. God is the, is the only being in the universe where selfishness is a good thing. Where it's good for him to be concerned about himself. Because he's committed to God too. But that's the first thing. God's jealousy is for him, but it's also for us. Because think about it this way. If God is really the source of ultimate happiness, and when we pursue other things to give us happiness, God, as our designer, is right rightly concerned about that. When we go against the grain of our design, our designer should be concerned. Think about it like this. Well, I remember when I was in high school, and I'm sure some of you have experiences in high school, maybe even here at college, where you, you, know, you hook up with your group of friends, you're doing something at night, and you, you enter into this awful dialogue, which is like, hey, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know. What do you want to do tonight? I don't know. And you go round and round. You're just like, can somebody just say something? I don't care what we do. Let's just do something. Well, when we were in high school, this group of friends of mine, we would inevitably just end up at somebody's house. And in, in this particular occasion, we, we ended up at my house. And of course, the first thing that you know, eight or ten guys do when you roll into somebody's house is what? You go straight for the pantry. Go straight for the fridge. And we did. And so at this point... My pantry was fairly well stocked with, you know, fruit snacks and uh, chips, Little Debbie's, and uh, we're in there enjoying ourselves, and one of my friends, I will never forget it, intentionally grabbed the box of dog biscuits off of the thing, and he's popping them into his mouth like they're Doritos, and he does not, I mean, he's intentionally eating the dog biscuits. Because at one point, in, you know, before this scene, he, he, he experimented and tried them and, and found out that he actually had a taste for, you know, milk bones. And so here he is eating the dog biscuits, and we're like, what are you doing? There's Little Debbie's and Gushers available. Why are you eating dog biscuits? But it's the same sort of deal. God is jealous. When we are pursuing and trying to soak up our happiness from other sources and and trying to get the same sort of nourishment and and being fed from something that is the equivalent of dog biscuits when God himself is is available. This is the nature of, of God's jealousy. This is what the Bible means when it says that God is jealous. He is committed to him and he is committed to us. Okay, let's look at the, the threats against God's jealousy. There's two, um, threats, two dangers that are presented in this passage. Dangers that could, could, 
you know, throw us off course from what it would look like to be totally devoted to God Himself. And they are affluence and idolatry. So let's look at each of these in turn. Affluence. I'm going to read verse 10 through 12 again. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build and houses with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, as you may remember, sort of the context of Deuteronomy is that the people have been rescued from Egypt. They're going through the, you know, the wilderness, the desert for 40 years, and they're right on the verge of the promised land. And Moses is talking about this, what's going to be coming, this anticipation of the land that they're about to inherit. And he lists four things, uh, that what you can find there are fully functioning cities, uh, houses that are well-stocked, already furnished for you, Drinking wells that are ready-made and productive olive groves and vineyards just set up for you. You are walking into a gold mine that you had nothing to do with. And then in the midst of all of this sort of material wealth and possession and security that they're walking into, what does he say in verse 12? Be careful. Watch out. There is a hidden danger in all of this materialism. But what is it? Verse 12. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. When life is good and safe and comfortable, it is really easy for God to get squished out to the periphery of your lives, right? I mean, affluence and money and material possessions seem to replace God very quickly. And these things seem to be the thing that we find uh, our safety in and our security in and not God himself. I mean, just think about it from your own life. Typically, typically, when do you feel closest to God? It's when life you know, it's kind of kicking the crap out of you, right? And you're getting dumped on. And it feels like God is the only thing that I have. He's the only anchor and I'm holding on to him as tight as I, as, as I can because he's the only thing that's still with me in the midst of all of this. And typically, when things are going really well and you've got money and you've got security and you've got a million things to distract you, you know, weeks and weeks go by and you wake up and you realize, God and I are kind of just acquaintances right now. I mean, this is typically how it works. Money and comfort can very easily replace God. And we kind of have this spiritual amnesia where we just sort of forget about it. I heard this pastor talking once, and he was kind of talking about the history of America, the history of our country, and the fact that, I mean, look at the fact, look at how much God seems to have blessed this country, or the, well, the wealthiest country in the world, unbelievably rich. And, and, you know, you look back at how sort of this country started, and it had very deep spiritual roots. And as the, as the you know, history progressed and we got wealthier and wealthier and richer and richer, all of the spiritual moorings seemed to got lost along the way and got eroded along the way. And so we, you know, obviously we're now a very secular country, but also a very rich country. And he just posed this question, which I thought was pretty thought-provoking. What if all of this wealth was not a sign that God was blessing America, but that God was cursing America? Now, I, I'm not going to you know, say one way or the other what I think the answer to that is, but I think it's an interesting question to think about because when you are living a lifestyle of comfort and ease and security and feels like everything is safe, then God just doesn't seem to matter as much anymore, right? Now, does this mean that you, that you can't be a believer if you're wealthy? No. Does this mean that you happen to have come from, you know, money with your family? Does this mean you can't be a believer? No. But I do, I do think that this means that you have a unique set of temptations, 
And the fact that if you are in this room right now, because you are, otherwise you wouldn't have heard me say that, but if you're in this room right now, do you realize that you are in the top 20% of the richest people in the world? Just comparatively to the rest of the planet, top 20% richest people in the world. So this temptation, this threat, faces you and me whether we know it or not and whether we like it or not. We are rich. And this is a problem. I mean, this is, this, is, this is a threat. This is not a problem. It's a threat. What are we going to do with it? So that's the first threat here. The second threat is just as dangerous, and it is idolatry. Let me read it. This is verse 14. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. Now, we've talked about idolatry a lot before, but when, when the Bible mentions other gods and, and idols and other things like that, it, this is talking about something much broader than what you may expect. It's not saying, hey, don't go join other religions. Don't be a Buddhist. Don't be a Muslim. You know, don't, don't get involved in other religions. It's saying something much deeper than that. It's going to, into the heart because what you worship is what, is what is at the center of your heart. It is what you base your entire life around. So this can be a very secular thing. It, it may not look like actual like worship at a church. It is what you are worshiping in your heart, what is gripping your attention, what your mind just naturally starts to daydream about. That is what you are actually worshiping. That's what it's saying. That, that, that's what's going on in the core of your heart. And so one of the things that you can do to find out what it is that you are actually worshiping what it is that is actually going on in your heart, what has really gripped your attention, what is really providing for your significance and for your self-worth and for your safety and security, one way to do it is just to ask yourself, if I lost that, or if I didn't get that, how would I feel? If I, if I lost that and didn't get that, and I would be crushed, and I would feel like a complete failure, and that life would be worthless and miserable after that, that's what your idol is. And so you can look at things in your own life and say, if I, if I lost that relationship with that guy or with that girl, or if I didn't get into that, that program or to that job, or if I didn't get ambassadors or whatever, and if I feel ruined and if I feel crushed as a result, that's an idol. You have put that thing, at, you have elevated that thing so high in your heart that it has demoted God and, and you have made that a God-like thing in your own heart. But it's not just this rearranging that goes on in your heart. This rearranging also actually starts to twist and corrupt you. And this is why you have all the problems that you have in your life. It all starts to kick in because you start to think, this is what I'm going to find ultimate happiness from. But it backfires and starts to actually unravel happiness in your own life. You start to feel anxious and you start to worry and start to get depressed and think about all these things. And it's because these idols are controlling and, and backfiring in your own life. And so every one of us has them. You are not immune from this. I am not immune from this. Every one of us has a disconnect between our professed theology and our practical theology. What we say we worship and what we are actually worshiping. Another way that you can find out what, what your idols are, what's going on in your heart, if you really want to know, is ask your friends. Get two or three friends that you really know, that really trust you, that are, would love you enough to be honest with you, and say... Okay, as terrifying as this is, I need you to assess my life from the outside and tell me, what do you think it is that I really worship? What do you think it is that I'm obsessing about or I just sort of naturally gravitate towards that I'm always talking about? What, what are those things? Because I'm, I'm not in touch with them. But of course, are you willing to be that vulnerable? Are you willing to expose you know, that part of your heart in that kind of way to figure it out? But that may be what it takes to figure out what's actually going on in your heart and figure out what you are actually worshiping. So that you can begin to get rid of those things. Those are the threats. Those are the two threats that Deuteronomy seems to put up here. Affluence 
and idolatry. Let's look lastly at the intensity of God's jealousy here. When you get to verse 13, we're instructed to do three things. Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Now this is basically all kind of shorthand for saying your entire life needs to be centered upon and underneath the authority of God Himself. This is what it would look like. We are to serve God. He is our master. He is our authority. We serve Him. But, As always, before we can understand what our response to God is, we have to understand what God himself has first done. Because hopefully, if you've been with us this semester, you'll see that as Deuteronomy goes on, it never commands us to do something that God himself hasn't done first. We are always in the position of response to God's initiative. So, okay, what is it? What has God done? Now, you wouldn't really know this by just sort of reading the English, but it's actually, something actually is really interesting going on in the, in the original language that this is written in. Because Moses is making this intentional contrast between two different forms of slavery. Uh, look at it. When you, when you get to verse 12, it says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of, the, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then you get to the very next verse in verse 13, and it says, Fear the Lord, uh, fear the Lord your God, serve him only. That word slavery and serve are two different forms of the same exact word. And so what all the commentaries think, and all the scholars who have looked at this are saying, Moses is comparing two different forms of, of taskmasters, two different forms of slave masters that Israel has had. Their old slave master and their new one. So, okay, who's their old one? Obviously, it's Egypt, Pharaoh. They were slaves in Egypt, and it was oppressive. Egypt was cruel. Egypt was harsh. Egypt was unforgiving. But their new slave master is God. Notice there's no sort of in-between limbo land. You are either serving one thing or the other. God rescues them and liberates them out of slavery in order to enter into another form of slavery, where God himself is their slave master. But he's not harsh, and he's not oppressive, and he's not cruel. But he's gentle and he's kind and he is good to his people. And so here's the point. Everyone is a slave to something. Even though Israel was liberated from slavery, they couldn't avoid being a slave to something. And this is what Bob Dylan said when you said, you've got to serve somebody, right? Everybody has to serve something. And the thing is, is that when you offer yourself to something, that becomes your master and that controls you. Rebecca Pippert, who is an um, uh, author, theologian, wrote this uh, in, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker. She says this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And so, you know, just think about it. Think about one of her examples, acceptance. Let's say that this is what you are seeking. You are seeking for you know, people to like you, for people to think well of you, for people to notice you. If that is the thing that is at the center of your heart, that begins to dominate and control every aspect of your existence. Think about it. Everything from how you have conversations, to how you dress, to how you interact socially, to uh, how far you are willing to go with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend, to what you share with your parents or with your professors, or maybe even more importantly, what you withhold from sharing with your parents or your professors or your friends, 
this thing is controlling and dominating every part of you where everything that you, every way that you act and everything that you are is taken up with the fact of people have to like me and I've got to feel accepted. And as a result, you constantly feel nothing but envious and self-pity and inadequate. You have hurt feelings all the time, like those people don't like me. It controls every single aspect of your existence if that is what it is that you have submitted to. But notice the Bible doesn't give us another option. You have to serve something. And as it suggests here in Deuteronomy, or if you look in the New Testament in Romans 6, there are only two forms of slavery. You are either a slave to sin, or you are a slave to God. Those are the only options. And so here is where we begin to see the intensity of God's jealousy. Because out of intense love and jealousy for his people, he doesn't just sit back and watch them suffer and be miserable and ruined under a different slave master. So what does he do? He actually breaks into time and space. He comes down and actually liberates his people from slavery. So this is what happens. Verse uh, 12, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He came down, broke their chains, and freed them from this oppressive slavery to bring them into another form of slavery. But what is it? Colossians chapter 1. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion, meaning the slavery of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, meaning liberation, the forgiveness of sins. Because the people of Deuteronomy, at this point, only knew of this one example, of this one experience when God came down and broke into time and space. But there is another time in the Bible when God comes down and breaks into time and space and liberates his people. And what is it? Jesus himself comes and breaks into this world to free his people, not just from political slavery, but from the slavery of their own idols, from the slavery of these things that are controlling and dominating their heart, from sin itself, from death itself. He came to do this. As miserable as it is to be under this type of slavery, he said, I'm going to fix this and bring you into another form of slavery, one where you are not miserable and ruined, but one where you are actually remade and filled with joy. But how does he do this? How does this whole thing work? Well, if you think about it in the context of a marriage, if one person in the marriage cheats on the other, there, there is a relational fracture that happens. There's a relational break. There, there, when one person forsakes the other and the other person forsakes the other, there, there is a, there's an obvious break in the relationship. It's the same sort of thing that happens in our relationship with God. When we say, I'm going to forget you, God, and go after other lovers, go after other idols, this same relational break happens in our relationship with God. There's still a relational fracture. We forsake God, and as a result, God is right to forsake us. But what happens when we are left forsaken by God? Out of intense, jealous love for his people, God sends his son, Jesus, to come and say, I'm going to do something about this relational break. I'm going to bear the brunt of this relational fracture so that these two parties can be glued back together in a marriage, in a loving relationship. And so he comes, and what does he say when he is dying on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is bearing the punishment of being forsaken. He has taken our place as the forsakers of God so that we can be brought back together. He is experiencing cosmic, eternal separation from his Father 
so that we no longer have to. He has taken our place so that we can be brought back together with him. I mean, what is the cross? When you look at the cross, when you look at this symbol here, what, what does this say to you? What does this communicate? The Bible says it is a demonstration of God's love, of his intense, jealous love for his people. Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. In other words, the gospel, the gospel is, is that the cross is a demonstration of God's intense love as a husband pursuing his bride, even though his bride has pursued everything else in the world. While we are running after other idols and other things to fill us and to make us happy, Jesus is coming running after us. And he lays down his life for us in our place so that we can be brought back together with him. Now, when you see this, when you begin to see what the cross is and, and, and how much you are loved and prized after and pursued and wanted in that way, what does that begin to do in your heart? That begins to reorder your affections. And your idols start to lose their appeal. They start to lose their attraction over time. And you stop, you stop wanting those things as much because you have his love. No longer, no longer are you concerned. If you, lose, if you lose this wealth, it doesn't really matter because you have his wealth. If you lose this relationship, as hard and as, and as heartbreaking as it may be, it's, it's okay because you have this relationship. If you don't have these, this people, these people's acceptance of you, as hard as that may be, it's okay because you have his acceptance of you. You see how the gospel begins to start pushing out and start pushing down your idols and start elevating God to the place where he's supposed to be in your heart? He's the only one who actually lays down his life for you. Let me close with this story, and hopefully this will kind of tie up everything into one little package. This is actually a true story. A friend of mine had a... Uh, a woman in his church that was addicted to pain medicine. And it was so bad, it got to the point where she was really, she would go over to people's house and, and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm just running errands, but I really need to use your restroom. And she would go in and just, you know, close the door, lock it behind her, and go through the medicine cabinet, hoping to find some sort of pain meds in there. Just sort of scrounging, trying to find, how can I get a hold of these pain medicines, this pain medication. And it got to the point, I guess, where she wasn't able to get what she wanted. And so one day she shoots herself. Miraculously, she doesn't die because she's actually the one that calls the police. And it's a really interesting scene because when the paramedics come over, they walk in the door and it's, just, it's, it's really weird when they walk in because they, they go through the house because she's in the back. She's in the backyard, actually. And they go through her room and her, her bed has all of these anatomy textbooks kind of just strewn open, open all over the place, all these different textbooks open uh, and on her bed. And then they go into the backyard, and she's, she's laying down on a mattress that I guess she's, she's brought out, and she's screaming, don't let me die, don't let me die. And of course, the paramedics are a little confused because they thought, you're, you just tried to commit suicide. I don't know, like, did you have a change of heart? Like, what, I don't understand what's happening. And when she gets to the hospital, they start to piece it together. That what she had actually been doing is studying where on the human body could you shoot and at what angle and not rupture any bodily organs. And so she brought out a mattress, shot herself in the chest, called the police to get the pain medicine. Her idol, her addiction, had driven her to such lengths that says, I will control you to the point that you have to lay down your life to serve me. It had ruined her. Her idols had sold her out and said, you have to have this, and you have to serve me in this way. Jesus is the only slave master who lays down his life 
for you. He's the only slave master who actually shoots himself so that you don't have to. And you can be brought under his dominion, which is not one of of oppression, but one of freedom and one of goodness and one where you are actually remade and made whole and filled with joy again. When you see the gospel, when you see the beauty of what Jesus has done, this begins to change your heart. And so the question for you tonight and the question for me tonight is, what are you serving? Are you serving Jesus? Are you serving something else? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of your son would be so attractive that we would pursue you above all else. That everything else that our heart naturally wants and naturally gravitates towards would be less attractive to us and that you would be indeed beautiful. I pray this for my heart too because you know I need it and I ask would you be kind to us as we see and behold the beauty of grace that is held out for us at the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.